We all love origin stories. Hollywood knows this well. Whenever they come up with a story and a cast of characters that the public finds compelling, as evidenced by their willingness to spend lots of money to watch, they then find themselves with a bunch of guaranteed money makers with movies that tell the story of the public's favorite characters. When Marvel's Avengers movies became huge hits, the studio started churning out profitable origin story movies. Origin stories are, comic in com uh, are common in comic book lore. Spider-Man was bitten by a radioactive spider. Superman was born on another planet and was sent to Earth by his parents to escape planetary destruction, and he grew up in rural Kansas. Bruce Wayne was born to privilege but was traumatized by the death of his parents at the hand of criminals, which led him to become the crime-fighting vigilante Batman. Or depending on the movie series you've watched, Batman. <laughs> After the repeated success of the various Batman movies, Hollywood made an origin story that the stories that, uh, for the story's creepiest villain and made a ton of money off the recent movie Joker. Why do we love origin stories so much? Because they help us understand someone or something more fully. But like the best origin stories, you often need to have some familiarity with the mature character or the primary story before you can truly appreciate the origin story. Take C.S. Lewis's famous Chronicles of Narnia series, for instance. If you read the stories in the order Lewis wrote them and intended for them to be read, you discover the magical world of Narnia full of adventures and powerful lessons and then and only then are you ready to appreciate the origin story laid out in The Magician's Nephew. And there's a reason that George Lucas made his original Star Wars trilogy before making the prequels. And that is what the Apostle John is doing in today's passage. He's giving us an origin story. He's already been discussing the importance of love in the Christian life. He has hammered home the truth that true Christians will love other Christians, and also the truth that true Christians will not love the evil world system that is opposed to God. In today's passage, John helps us understand love by telling us its origin story. It is a story grounded in the eternal character of God, and it finds its most powerful expression in an act of love unlike any other in history. And understanding and embracing this origin story of love can help save our souls and transform our lives. But what is love? Our culture has such a cheap and flimsy idea of love. It is either a warm, fuzzy feeling we get that someone or something brings out in us, which is really a form of self-love, or it's used synonymously with an intimate physical act that in God's plan, at least, should only be reserved for a loving marriage. The Greek word used in this passage 21 times is the word agape, which indicates a self-sacrificial love. The love we are talking about here simply desires what is best for the person who is loved, often at great personal sacrifice for the one who loves. So let's look at our passage today, which gives us the origin story of Christian love. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Now, fair warning, this is a really long passage, so you're really going to be helped by reading along, uh, whether that's electronically or in the few Bibles provided there, which 
starts on page 708, by the way, so you can flip right there. No, no joke, and I'm going to be referring to this passage a lot so that it will really help you uh, to, to open up that Bible. One of the reasons, Khan, I like to do that, uh, one is because you'll get more out of the sermon, but two, just the symbolism of you holding us accountable by the Word of God, I think is very important. So, while you're flipping there to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, if you're, not, if you're new to the Bible, just go to the book of Revelation in the end, flip forward a few little tiny books. While you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, let's recap our sermon series in this book. John uses basic, simple language and yet says profound things. So we're calling this series Basics for Believers. We also came up with our own periodic table of basic elements of true Christianity. All throughout this book, we see various tests for each element. There's the truth test, what we believe, the light test, how we live our lives or our morality, and the love test, who and how we love. If the tests show that we don't have these basic elements in our lives, we probably don't have true Christianity. Today's passage is primarily about the love test, but it's not just a test for love. Here we learn where love comes from, its origin story, and we see the most powerful expression of love in all the universe. So please follow along uh, with your eyes as I read aloud 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we also in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Today we have four points. And I got these four points from the first verse in our passage, verse 7. And I think they provide a helpful framework uh, to understand this passage in this passage of Scripture. I will take them slightly out of order just simply for dramatic emphasis. So we have the audience for love, the command to love, the test of love, and the cause of love. The audience for love, the command to love, the test of love, 
and the cause of love or the origin story of love. Point number one, the audience for love. Notice the first word in this passage, which we also see in verse 11, beloved. Literally, people who are loved. John is sincerely reminding his audience, which includes us, of his love for them and us. John is modeling the Christian love of which he speaks. This is the love that a good shepherd has for his sheep. But John loves double meanings and even triple meanings, so he is likely also referring to those who are loved by God. John is primarily addressing Christians, Christians who have experienced the love of God and thus are beloved by God. But there are important truths here for non-Christians as well, especially those of you who are Christian curious and open to honestly considering the claims of Christianity. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you've picked a good Sunday to attend because we're going to be looking at one of the most compelling truths in all of Christianity, the love of God, what it means and what it doesn't mean. So that's the audience for love, the beloved. Sorry, not all my points are going to be this short. Let's look at the command to love. Point number two, the command to love. We've seen this before uh, in John's first epistle, and we'll see it again here. The simple truth is that Christians are commanded to love. Love is not optional in the Christian life. Let's start in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. That let us, two words, not the vegetable. See, if you're reading along, you would know that. Just saying. That let us is John telling us that loving each other is something we should all be doing. Notice verse 11. Beloved, we also ought to love one another. He says ought. This is something that we should do. We ought to do. It's only fitting and proper. In a sense, it's our duty to love one another. This passage is bookended in love. John begins this passage in verse 7 with a command to love and he ends it in verse 21 with another clear command. Verse 21, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John explicitly states that love is a command, and that if someone truly loves God, they must also love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Must is not a word you use when something is optional. If we fail to love, we fail to obey. Lack of love is sin. We are commanded to love, but like so many commands in the Bible for Christians, we are commanded to do something that in a sense should come naturally to us, to our new Holy Spirit-empowered nature, that is, and not to our old sinful nature. Point number three, the test of love. We've also seen the love test many times uh, in this sermon series. And it is repeated several times again in this passage, but often with a new perspective or emphasis each time. Let's again begin in verse 7 and look at the, the beginning of verse 8 as well. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Notice the words whoever or anyone. This is test language. It's telling us who fits into the group of people who know God. It's like a scientific test. What fits into this subset of people who know God? To know God means to have a personal relationship with Him, to know Him personally and intimately. 
we see another love test in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Despite many visions of God and partial revelations of God throughout the Bible, no sinful human being can stand in the presence of a holy God. But our love for our fellow Christians visibly portrays the invisible God to the sinful world around us. This is what Christ is getting at when he says in John's gospel, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Next, we see an aspect of the love test that we might call the spirit test. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Verse 12 said that our love is evidence of God's abiding in us. To abide in means to live in. We've seen this mutual abiding before where God lives in us and we live in him. Verse 13 explains that our abiding in God is the result of the spirit of God within us. In a previous sermon, we thought about how all these tests, the truth test, the light test, and the love test, are all really tests for the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. These tests for the elements of Christianity are ultimately tests for the presence of the spirit. All who turn from their sins and trust in Christ receive the Holy Spirit. And these elements are very similar to the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians. Another test for this kind of abiding is the Son test. Notice verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This is really just another version of the truth test. We must believe and confess truth about Jesus that he is the son of God and equal with God, based on this passage here. If we have the son, we have that same mutual abiding with God. And we have another abide test. Look at verse 16b, the second half of verse 16. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. If we abide in, live in love, it is evidence that God abides in, lives in us. There's yet another subset of the love test that we might call the fear test. Notice verses 17 through 18. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Perfect love casts out fear, specifically the fear of punishment. When we experience the love of God, we no longer need to fear the punishment from Him. But that raises some important questions. How can love overcome a fear of punishment if we truly deserve to be punished? How can a holy God show love to sinners? Well, stay tuned because we will solve that riddle in my next point. How's that for one of those TV teasers, right? Next at 11. Now let's look at the negative version of the love test, which we might call the hate test. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There you have it. It is impossible to hate a Christian brother or sister and truly love God. It's often easy to think of ourselves as loving people, having a love for our fellow man, for mankind and humanity. 
but not really love the actual people in our lives, especially the difficult, the ordinary, the familiar, or the seemingly unimportant people we see daily. One important way to prove that you love God, the one important way to prove that you love the God you cannot see is to love the people in your life that you can see. So we've looked at the love test from a number of different angles. Now we'll consider where love comes from, its origin story. Point number four, the cause of love. We cannot truly understand this love, this love that we are commanded to feel and to live out, this love that is the evidence of our love for God, unless we understand where it comes from. And now if you're an avid note taker, I have four sub points for you. Letter A, the nature of God is love. The nature of God is love. Notice verse 7, for love is from God. In case you were wondering, love is one of the many good gifts created by a good God. We didn't invent love, God did. But John makes an even more powerful statement in both verses 8 and 16, where he says the simple yet profound little phrase, God is is love. Love is an important and essential aspect of God's nature, but this little phrase can be easily misunderstood. I like how one commentator put it, grass is green, but green is not grass. Green is an essential characteristic of grass, except now in this area with all the brown grass out there, but stay with me. Green is an essential characteristic of grass, but the quality of greenness is not the same thing as the plant that we call grass. God is not just a word we use for love or for loving feelings. God is a divine person whose nature is love. Well, that raises another question. But you might ask, doesn't the Bible also describe God as holy and is so angry with sin that he must punish sin? Yes. In my devotions recently, I've been reading in Ezekiel where God's wrath is poured out on sinful people, but he also lovingly promises to restore those same people. We will address this apparent contradiction shortly. Letter B, the Trinity demonstrates God's love. The Trinity demonstrates God's love. Notice all the references to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in this passage. Verses 9 and 10 talk about the Son. Verse 13 mentions the Spirit. Verse 14 mentions the Father and the Son. And then verse 15 talks about the Son again. The doctrine of the Trinity is an essential doctrine of true Christianity. There's that truth test again. God is one God, and yet He has eternally existed as three separate and distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The persons of the Godhead are all equally God and share equally the awesome and perfect attributes of God, but they each have different roles and authority. Each member of the Trinity was involved in creation, each was involved in writing and preserving the scriptures, and each is active in the process of saving sinners from their sins. Far from being an embarrassing technicality of Christianity, the Trinity has important theological and practical implications. Some theological implications. In a sense, God did not need to create anything to show his perfect love. The members of the Trinity have enjoyed a perfect love for all eternity past. The Trinity demonstrates that love is an important and eternal part of God's nature. Some practical implications. 
Don't you see how the love within the Trinity is a model for all human relationships? Can you see how having a position of authority doesn't make you, uh, the people under you, inferior? Or how people can have equal worth and yet have different roles in authority? And this is one thing that actually I think American culture gets right. We often talk a lot of, uh, about things that American culture gets wrong or emphasizes in the wrong context, and that's true. But this is one thing I think we get right. We abolish titles of nobility in our founding documents. And we try to keep enough flexibility that people can rise to positions of power and influence. But we, we know instinctively within us, it, whether it's in the military or in civilian life, that just because someone has a position of authority and that we have to obey that authority doesn't mean that they're superior to us, that they're better than us. And we resent people that think otherwise. So in the Trinity, there is equal worth and yet different roles in authority. Think of the implications for the church, for your marriage, for the home, for society, for business, for the U.S. military, for any organization or group of people. Letter C, God initiates love. God initiates love, not us. Lest we think that it's our love that, God, that causes God to love us, verse 19 sets us straight. We love because He first loved us. We must remember that we were not lovable when God chose to love us. As another verse says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us when there was no reason to love us. His love produces our love, not the other way around. And now, ladies and gentlemen, what you've all been waiting for. Letter D, the gospel is the most powerful expression of love. The gospel is the most powerful expression of love. Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. In love, the Father sent the Son on a rescue mission. The Son went willingly and with full knowledge of the cost. As the Scripture says, for the joy set before Him, He despised the shame of the cross. But if the Son was sent to be the Savior, what is it that we need to be saved from? Our sin, from our wrongdoing. As we sang earlier, what we have done and what we have left undone. Our sin deserves eternal punishment, and so we desperately need a perfect Savior. But how? How can the Son be a Savior to a sinful world? Now we come to what I consider to be the most powerful verses in the whole epistle. If you have ever wondered what the statement, God is love, truly means, these verses are for you. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To manifest means to reveal. It's like when a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat and says, ta-da, he manifests the rabbit. Or think of the increasingly popular gender reveal parties. Now, just please, if you're going to do a gender reveal party, don't use fireworks in dry Southern California, okay? Just have some thought there. But it's popular. What are they revealing there? They're revealing the unborn baby's gender. This is how God revealed love to us, by sending His Son on a rescue mission. 
And notice what the Son gives us, life. The clear implication is that we are spiritually dead to begin with. We need a spiritual resurrection that can only be provided by the Son who is sent by the Father in love. This is love, or as the King James said, herein is love, or as we sang earlier, here is love. God is giving us His definition of love, and we can sum it up in one word, propitiation. We've looked at this powerful word before in this series. It means to satisfy God's wrath. But how could a loving God have wrath? Because He's good. And because He's good, He is right to be angry with sin, and He must punish all sin, not just the really icky kinds. But God demonstrated His love by providing His Son to take the place of sinners, to be a substitute on that cross, so that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. Now, not everybody likes the term propitiation. Not long ago, there was a megachurch pastor in Michigan who attracted a large following through his creativity and his powerful communication skills, especially young people who are disenchanted with traditional church. He started a steady slide away from traditional Christianity, and now he's an artist and motivational speaker and Oprah's favorite preacher. The big red flag that he was departing from the true faith happened when he published a book called Love Wins. Basically, he argued from this passage and from others that a loving God could never really punish anyone for their sin and certainly never send anyone to hell. Regardless of whether you've ever heard of Rob Bell or ever encountered his teaching or ever do encounter it, chances are that you've been exposed to it or will be. It's not original to him. It's what our sinful, self-centered hearts want to believe, that God's love negates his holiness and means that God will never really punish sin. This is a lie. Even though it might make some people feel good about themselves, it's a lie. And if you put your trust in this lie, you will be terribly disappointed for all eternity. We don't get to redefine love according to our own self-centered desires. God defines exactly what he means by love in this passage. He showed love by sending his only son to satisfy his just wrath against sinners. This is the gospel. We have all sinned and deserve eternal punishment. Christ died for sinners and rose from the dead. All who admit their sin, turn from their sin and place their trust and dependence on Christ alone for forgiveness of sins will have eternal life with God in heaven. If you have any questions about this, please talk to one of us afterwards. Don't leave today without knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Don't leave today without knowing the love of God. This is the gospel. This is love. And of course, verse 11 follows. Since God has loved us in this way, we ought also to love one another. This is how we love sinners, because God loved us while we were yet sinners. This is how we love people who have disappointed us, because God loves us even when we disappoint Him. This is how we avoid holding grudges, because we know that the great and righteous judge of the universe will one day sort everything out. This is how we can lovingly show mercy, because we have received mercy. And this is how we can still love even though we've been hurt in the past, because God in Christ was hurt for us. 
I have a few scattershot applications for both Christians and non-Christians. Christian, this is how we avoid legalism. We don't fight our sin to earn God's forgiveness or to make ourselves feel superior to other people. We live for God out of love for the love that He has shown us. This is how we hate our sin. We see what sin did to the one who perfectly loved us on the cross. This is how we feel loved when we are lonely or discouraged or disappointed or depressed. We rejoice in the love of God to us in the gospel. This is how we find the motivation to live life for God. It's what it means to live a gospel-centered life. You live your life in response to God's love shown in the gospel. And if you want to know more about what it means to live a gospel-centered life, check out some of the resources we recommend on our church website. My Christian friends, do you love other Christians? Do you want to be with them each week? Are you willing to be inconvenienced by them? Are you willing to pray for them or even notice them? How can you not after the love that God has shown you in the gospel? My non-Christian friend, this love is your only hope. No sin is beyond God's love through the gospel. Turn from your sins and trust in Him alone today. Let the love of the gospel save your soul and let the love of the gospel transform your life. I hope that seeing the origin story of love has helped you better understand and appreciate the love of God, to know what the Apostle Paul calls surpasses knowledge. Now, I hope you no longer misunderstand the love of God. Now, I hope you see these words in a new light and, have a new, and they have a new and profound meaning for you. We love because He first loved us. God is love. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.